What messes us up most in our life is the picture in our heads of how it is supposed to be. Anonymous. This is a quote that I have pinned on Pinterest, a website where you pin pictures of what the ideal life is supposed to be. <laughs> the, the irony is not lost on me, but the statement is no less true. Quite often, what does mess us up most in life is the picture in our heads that we have of how our lives are supposed to be. I don't know about you, but this is a problem that I have to repent of often. I have had many, many, many pictures in my head and countless expectations about how my life should be. I am the poster child for great expectations. In the past, I have wrestled with expectations about how motherhood should be, how marriage should be, how my finances should be, expectations about my church, my career, my house, my physical appearance. They all crop up much more than I would like to admit. I even have expectations of God. Obviously, I have some issues. And as if having all these expectations wasn't bad enough, I have also been known to hold on to them tightly, refusing to let them go, despite how exhausting it was to keep my fingers clenched around them in a death grip. I have come to the realization that I must be a slow learner because on more than one occasion I have had to learn the hard way that holding on to what I think I want despite all the warning signs that things will end badly is not a great idea. Three years ago I learned this lesson once again. I refer to this season of my life now as the marvelous plan for my life phase because I had a marvelous plan. And I was determined that no matter the obstacles, that I would see it through. The plan was, and it included, selling our house and moving to a farm 20 miles away from our life in Little Rock. It was primarily motivated by the fact that my life had become fundamentally unmanageable. And I could see no other way than to cut and run. Of course, if you had asked me back then why I, who had only ever lived in the city and was not really a fan of the great outdoors, wanted to move to the country, I would have told you that it was because my husband wanted to get back to his rural roots. And that was true, but it was only a fraction of the truth. The brutally honest truth was that I was drowning in a life that I had created, and instead of staying and doing the hard work of dealing with the mess, I just wanted out. So we put the house on the market, made an offer on what we thought was the perfect farm, and I spent hours dreaming of our new life and ignoring my current one. I planned our first homespun Christmas on our farm, and I fantasized about cutting down a tree off my own property and having a big party to show off my great barn, and ice skating over a frozen pond, as if anyone in Arkansas has ever skated on a pond. <laughs> Great expectations, remember? Okay. And everything was going just as I expected until the buyer backed out of the sale of our house eight days before we closed. We lost the deal on the farm. Our dog died. All of our backyard chickens were brutally slaughtered in a raid by owls during the night. And I broke my foot in three places just as the holiday season was beginning. 
To say that my expectations were completely annihilated would be an understatement. I was devastated. I had put all my eggs in that basket, convinced that moving to the farm would fix my life. And now here I was, in the same life I didn't want, stuck on a couch to face it every day. And so, broken foot propped up, I went through all the stages of grief as I mourned the marvelous plan for my life. Step one, denial. Maybe someone will just show up and knock on the door of our house and want to buy it. Anger. I hate this. I'm not even going to celebrate Christmas. Bargaining. Okay, God, if you give me a farm, I will blog about it and say how it was all an answer to prayer. Yay, God! Depression. Lots and lots of tears. And finally, the last stage, acceptance. When I allowed my fingers to be pried off of my soured expectations and I opened my hands wide to whatever was to be instead. When I became ready to face the life I was running from and to do the hard work to change it from the inside out instead of trying to do things the other way around. In this morning's gospel reading, we encounter another example of great expectations gone awry. With Peter, who, true to form, has his fists clenched tight around his own set of expectations. In Matthew 16, we see Jesus attempting to prepare the disciples for rough times ahead. But Peter cannot hear what Jesus is saying and reacts strongly with an impassioned and seemingly sincere objection. No, Lord, no way that's going to happen. It could never happen. We won't let it happen. But Jesus is having none of Peter's protest. And his response to Peter is startlingly harsh. Now I have to confess here that I always have a hard time with angry Jesus. I don't need fuzzy slippers Jesus, but righteous anger Jesus always unsettles me a bit. Because of this, my reaction for many years to Jesus' reply in this passage was not a pleasant one. I found him to be cruel, impatient, and unjust in his reaction to Peter who at first glance appears to be genuinely concerned for Jesus' fate. This is how I felt and became, until I became a parent. It was only after my children had asked what was for dinner and responded with a disappointing moan and groan for the hundredth time after I told them that dinner involved you know, a green vegetable of any kind, but I suddenly wondered if perhaps the reason Jesus snapped that day was that he had just had it with Peter and the disciples missing the point yet again. Here he was, trying to explain what the future held, trying to let the disciples in on the long-term plan of redemption, and all Peter could do was react to Jesus from the same sort of short-term perspective that my kids, sorry guys, suffer from when they moan at my choice of dinner menu. You see, boys, I don't serve you salad because I hate you. I don't. I, I serve you salad because I want you to be alive and healthy in 20, 30, 40 years. And I serve you salad because I am more concerned with your long-term wellness than your short-term comfort. And Jesus didn't tell Peter about the coming suffering in order to gain Peter's sympathy or to ruin Peter's day. He told him in order to help prepare him for a new reality. But Peter reacted to Jesus from a place rooted in his expectations of how things should go, instead of opening his heart and his hands to whatever would be. 
And to go even one step further, I'm not sure that it is Christ's suffering that worries Peter the most, any more than it was my husband's desire to live on a farm that motivated me to push and push to move before we were ready. I think perhaps that what sends Peter into a panic is the very possibility that things might not go as he expected. I think it was Peter's sudden realization that the life he wanted, the life he preferred, the life he had grown comfortable in, might disappear. And this caused his great unrest. And perhaps Peter's cries of, Oh no, Lord, we won't let this happen, are not just a protest against Jesus' impending suffering, they are also a protest against his own. Because if what Jesus was saying was true, if there was suffering, betrayal, death, and resurrection ahead, then everything that Peter had come to know and come to count on and come to love would change. And so in this small two-sentence interaction, we see Peter come face to face with what has become an all-too-familiar dilemma for a lot of us, wanting to both follow Christ and wanting to live in the comfortable fulfillment of our own expectations. It is here, at this crossroads of these two desires, that Jesus turns his attention to all of the disciples and seizes the opportunity to begin working out of them any illusion that they, and consequently we, might have that we can live in both worlds, the world of our expectations and the world of following Christ. It is here that Jesus thwarts any last notion that his chief concern is our comfort. If you want to follow me, you have to give up the things you think you want, he tells them. You must embrace God's story, not just your own. You must let go of your expectations. You have to sacrifice your plans. You will have to lay aside any illusions that you have that everything is under your control, including your faith. You are just going to have to follow me, one step at a time. And this is the challenge we find before us today. Can we do this? Can we lay down our expectations and our comforts and follow Christ? Let's say for the sake of this message that we decide that we will. We will give up our expectations and our proclivity for the predictable, the comfortable, and the safe. What in the world do we do next? What is the step that comes after we abandon our great plans for our lives? How then shall we live? Reading over today's scriptures, I was pleasantly surprised to see that Paul has thrown us a rope. We don't always get so lucky with Paul, <sighs> but today we get off easy. <laughs> the reading from Romans 12, while challenging, seems fairly straightforward and, dare I say, helpful as we begin our journey in living out Christ's commandment to deny ourselves and follow him. Here are a few of the ideas we see in Romans 12 as interpreted by a variety of biblical translations. Love others well. Love authentically. Don't hide behind a mask. Love from the very center of your being. Despise evil. Pursue what is good as if your life depends on it. Live in true devotion to one another. Loving each other as a family. Be the first to honor others by putting them first. Do not slacken your faithfulness of hard work. Be enthusiastic about your faith. Let your spirit bubble up and boil over as you serve. Share what you have with God's people. Take every opportunity to open your life and your home to others. If people mistreat you or malign you, bless them. I think this even counts in traffic. 
If someone has cause to celebrate, join in the celebration, maybe even if we're jealous about what they're celebrating. And if others are weeping, join in that as well, maybe even if they brought it on themselves. Work towards unity and live in harmony with one another. Avoid thinking you are better than others or wiser than the rest. Instead, embrace common people and the very most ordinary of tasks. Do not retaliate wrong with wrong, regardless of the wrong brought against you. Try to do what is good and right and honorable as agreed upon by all people. If it's within your power, make peace. Do not seek revenge. If your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Never let evil get the best of you. Instead, overpower evil with the good. Did anyone notice that every single one of Paul's helpful tips has to do with how we relate and serve others as a response to Christ's love? And not one single one of them was about what we should expect from others towards us or what we should expect from our lives. There was not one mention about different houses or better cars or skinnier hips or politer children or easy paths or goals. Each item only dealt with how to live out Christ's love as unto others with our hands open wide. When we cling with clenched fists to our expectations of ourselves, of others, and of Christ, of our churches and our neighbors and our families, we are operating out of a place of self and not out of a place of service. If instead we can learn to let go of all those pictures in our heads of how our lives ought to be and open up our hearts and pry our fingers and open our hands to love others as Christ has loved us, if we put one foot in front of the other, worrying only about whether or not we are loving authentically, sharing with everyone, speaking blessings instead of curses and feeding our enemies, and working to live in harmony. I think if we can do those things, then we will find unexpected gifts of joy and redemption in the most unlikely of places, and we will find more peace than we could ever expect in the plans of our own making. Amen.